I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Check it out. Rebel Radio is coming live to new story at the LA Times Festival of Books, Sunday, April 14th, 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the USC campus. If you're not out of Coachella, I expect to see you there. My guest will be the one and only DJ Z Trip, uh, one of my heroes, one of my favorite DJs of all time. And we're going to have a good time. Uh, I've been trying to get Z-Trip on the show for years now. And finally, the dates and, and all the stars aligned for us to do this for you live on stage. Um, it's a great event. I was there last year. I interviewed Ali Shaheed Muhammad. It's been one of my favorite interviews, not only because Ali is a legend and a hero of mine, but also just the energy of the crowd. It's good stuff. Uh, Events.latimes.com slash Festival of Books if you want to get tickets. You can uh, also check all our socials. We'll be posting links to make sure that you know about it. And I'd love to see you there. This is Laura Cathcart-Robbins, and you're listening to Rebel Radio. Fuck you, Josh. It's weird, I'm sorry. What's up, this is Rebel Radio. What up, what up, this is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy, it's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh? Rebel Radio is going down. What did you say, Rebel Radio? Oh wait, let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up Rebels, welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I talk to the Rebels that are shaping youth culture. We find out how they do it, why they do it, and what you can do to get a little piece of the pie for yourself. We're also the only show to bring you new music every week from our friends over at EDM.com. I'm your host, Josh Levine, and my guest in studio today is Laura Cathcart-Robbins. She's an old friend, and uh, we start off the episode kind of catching up on some of our history. Um, Laura is a great writer, blogger, storyteller. Um, talking about her experiences with addiction, recovery, relationships, really just human issues that we all go through in different ways in our own lives. I love Laura's stories um, for her vulnerability and positivity. She kind of blends those two in a really interesting way. Laura's uh, launching her own podcast, Any Day Now, The Only One in the Room. Make sure you check that out. And uh, most importantly, 
Check out this interview with Laura Cathcart Robbins right after our EDM.com track of the week. see it the edm.com track of the week if you like that one get over to edm.com check out more new music and now let's get into the interview with laura cathcart robin well i'm so excited to do this with you um we should talk about how we know each other yeah uh and then i want to i want to dig into everything that you're doing and how it all came to happen i i was trying to remember how we met me too. And I'm sure I pitched you. No, so I th- maybe. I think we. So you were a music publicist, right? And I was a manager at yeah. that time, a manager and a journalist. Yeah, I mean, I, I, oh, it might have been. So I thought we hired you for Bosco, who I was managing. Yes. yes. Who I just had on the show recently. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. And so that would have been. Oh. Ninety four. Ninety four. Yeah. And. Um, so I don't remember who introduced us or whatever. I don't either. But I remember it was, I met you and Cheo, mm-hmm. um, Tracy McGregor, and... Um, who I just saw on the R. Kelly, on the Aaliyah documentary. Oh, really? Yeah, I saw Tracy being interviewed. I saw her the other day. We had, we had breakfast. We had breakfast like a year ago. Uh-huh. But I see her every once in a while because she lives near oh, me yeah, yeah. in the valley and her kid goes right. to the school right, right near our house. Um, nice. And then, what was her name at Rap Pages? Uh, Sheena Lester. Yes. Yeah. So I met all of you, like, around the same time. Nice. And kind of cultivated this little network of... Sure. You were all younger than me. Right. Um, you know, not much. Not much. But at the time, uh-huh. yeah, it yeah, seemed like you sure. guys were kids, and I was this, you know, 27-year-old. Right. Sure. <laughs> who... Um, kind of, you know, was, was just, I don't know, like you guys, it seemed like you guys were the, the, the up and coming, mm-hmm. you know, group, which you were. It felt like yeah. that at the time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, well, look at what's happened with you, what's happening with Cheo. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what Tracy's doing, but there was this, I don't know, it was this really cool camaraderie. Yeah. I felt like we had. Yeah. I feel, I don't know how much that exists now. We've talked about that so. You know, from time to time on the show, how to me at least that felt like a really special moment in mm-hmm. culture and and business, where there was just this community, yeah, that was really uh, kind of helping each other. Everybody was on their own path, but we were sort of all in it together at the same time. I, I don't know if that exists so much anymore. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. You have to see with your kids if they if they form those type of units. Yeah, they at that time. 
you know, you guys were my introduction, you know, and Steve to underground hip hop. Mm-hmm. I I had, you know, kind of been raised on mainstream hip hop. Yeah. Except for because I was in the Bay Area. Right. Um, too short. Of course. You know, I had one of his mixtapes that he sold out of his trunk near yeah, the Coliseum. Sure. So um, wait, what and, city and, did you grow up in? Well, so up until age 12, almost 13, I was in Cambridge, Mass. Okay. But then we moved to Berkeley. Oh, wow. And I went to Berkeley High. Wow. And I was, I was there until I was, not at Berkeley High, but in Berkeley until I was 20. I turned 21 in Florida. I moved there after that. Wow. So, but so for that, all those teenage years, all the high school years, mm-hmm. I was in Berkeley, mm-hmm. and um, crazy time in the Bay. Oh, it was it was wonderful. I think it's always a crazy time in the Bay. Yeah, yeah. It was just so cool. It was yeah. so diverse. I was um, I was friends with Huey Newton, mm. um, and and his son Ronnie, who um, who committed suicide. Mm. Uh, few years after I met him but um so I was connected to the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense yeah which was which he wasn't an active part of anymore but he was he was still this legend sure yeah and and you know and he 40 was coming up then as a youngster, I never knew Nathan. That disobedient ass challenge in neighborhood, you know the one I'm placed was always chasing. Straight down and dirty for my props. Eleven years old, extra manish, hard headed, shining rocks. I killed a cop black motherfucking old flies toy that was hella bigger than me. Like it was all this mm-hmm. kind of swell of commentary on 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 where we were. And I was I had been raised in all independent schools always the only black kid mm-hmm. um, my parents were not church-going black people they were intellectual artists yeah. hippies yeah. so this was brand new exposure for me to black people on a at a at a level that I had never experienced it yeah and um, and I loved it I loved it I loved everything about it well, I know you, you write and talk about race and mm-hmm. your experience as a black woman, and I want to I get into that, but I'm, I'm curious, you know, I've had the experience because I grew up in San Francisco right after you, yeah. you know, yeah. um, I left there in 89, mm-hmm. but, you know, the, it's, it's, it's taken me years to understand that the world is segregated, because mm. growing up in San Francisco and Berkeley, mm-hmm. right, it's just not. No. And yeah, there's problems. There's still problems with race for sure, even in those communities. But it's a very different experience of just like there is no racial majority. Right. And um, I don't know. It took me a long time. I came to UCLA and was like, what? This is weird. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to kind of understand that, that, that our little bubble was not the world. Yeah. I... I felt exactly the same. My my friends in high school were black, Filipino, white, mixed race, Japanese. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of individuals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. same um, here. And and we were just, you know, there was there was the the way that we assess each other now, or here, um, in 2019 in this society where we where we are right now, it was much different from the way we assessed each other then yeah 
And um, and my first experience with racism was when I moved to Florida mm. when I was 20. Of course. And I was denied service um, at a nail salon. Wow. And, uh, you know, people, I'd be walking. No one's walks in Florida. First of all, everybody <laughs> right. thought I was a prostitute because I was walking. <laughs> like, that was crazy. Um, but I would walk and people would, like, yell, nigger out the, nigger go home out of the window. What? Wow. <laughs> Who are they talking to? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I, I got um, just very subtle forms of racism, overt forms. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wondered if maybe I hadn't been aware of it before, but I, mm. hadn't, I hadn't encountered it that way. I mean, that's not going to happen in Berkeley. No. If it would, it would be like an incident. Yeah, it would be, it would be really weird, and yeah. that person probably wouldn't have belonged there. Yeah. So, yeah, that was my, my first, like, the skin I'm in, the hair that I have, mm -hmm. um, creates fear in people. I think that's the basis of, of mm. any kind of hatred is, is fear. Okay. And, and for whatever reason, um, they don't want me around because of that. And right. it has nothing to do with my smile or my personality or my experience. Yeah or who I love or how I, any of that. Mm -hmm. It's just, you look this way, we don't want you around. Mm -hmm. And that, that was um, scary and humbling. It made me very aware that Florida is part of the South, which I yeah, didn't sure. realize before. <laughs> Thought right. of it was East Coast. Yeah. Um, and, and also, I, you know, I didn't want to live there. I didn't want to. The other thing, just really quickly in Florida is there weren't very many black people who look like me. Mm -hmm. um, if they did, they were usually from the Caribbean or right. Cuba. Yeah, yeah. So I would get the Spanish-speaking sure. salespeople sent over to me <laughs> in stores. Right. And the, you know, even among the black people in Florida, who are mainly of Caribbean descent, I think, there just wasn't much segregation. There wasn't mm -hmm. much, much mixing, you know? Yeah. And um, so I stood out again doubly stood out, sure. you know, by looking the way that I do. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking the right. way that I do. Yeah. Which was different. Yeah, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. It's funny. So one, one last connection before we get into yeah. your story. So um, I came to some party at your house. Yeah. I brought Mike Karen, whose building we're sitting in. Oh, wow. With me. Wow. And, and uh, we saw Shaq in a, in a yellow suit. Yes. And I tried to offer Mike 50 bucks if he would run and bump Shaq into the pool oh, no. and pretend it was an accident. And then we'd run out of there, but he didn't. He would have really enjoyed that, too. Oh, I'm sure he would have. <laughs> yeah. He was, like, standing near the pool, and I was like, just run as hard as you can. Mm -hmm. Knock him in the pool, and then we'll just run out of here. Wow. He didn't yeah. take me up on that, as no. you know. Um, anyway, so I met your friend yeah. uh, who, like, the scene in The Godfather, I was struck by the thunderbolt. Mm. And we ended up dating for four years. Wait, which uh, friend? That was Monica. Oh, yes, Monica. Yes. And uh, yes. one of the, my great relationships that taught me so much in my mm. life. Mm. Um, and for a little while there, I was sort of part of a weird club that I didn't feel all that comfortable in, which yeah. was Jewish Hollywood guys dating black women. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, we end up at a bunch of house parties together. Yep. Which was just a funny... I don't know, it's just a weird cultural place to be. Isn't that interesting, though? Yeah. Because it is kind of a club. 
It is. And so, you know, again, for me growing up in San Francisco, you know, I had friends and dated women of all, mm -hmm. all races and ethnicities and never, um, there were a bunch of guys who their thing was to date black women. Yeah. Which is, yeah. you know, none of my business what they want to do. But, but I sort of found myself in those rooms and thought that was just a strange. But I also felt like there was like this pocket of Jewish men, and there may still be, who were really just, not just enamored with black culture, but, um, but in it, Yeah, you know, yeah. where it's, it's the, the music yeah. of black culture is their music. Totally. Uh, and so it makes sense mm -hmm. to be attracted to whoever is attracted to that same stuff, which yeah. is, you know, black women. Yeah. And, and to be attracted to black women. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I don't mean to make it yeah. solely like a sex thing. Um, I think it was a, a cultural thing. And I was actually having this argument with somebody the other day saying that, you know, he was trying to make the argument that um, the point of having a diverse workforce is to be able to relate to the diverse customer base. Yes. And I kind of said, you know, I get that, but... Hip hop is a great example where it was built by blacks and Jews, mm -hmm. and it sure was. right. Yeah. I mean, in, and in a lot of cases, I don't know if if you had this experience, but the the sort of black establishment that was really invested in R and B mm -hmm. was very anti hip hop. Yes, like yes. it was. They were too bougie for that, mm -hmm. and it was offensive to them. Mm -hmm. And and um, but there was a bunch of Jewish guys who were you know invested in the culture and more than willing to to embrace that. And so I don't, personally, I don't sort of believe in diversity in that same way. Mm -hmm. I believe like, I don't know. I, I don't know how to explain it because I think we've had this unique experience where yeah. where diversity just is. Yeah, and you know, I, I, do, I do a lot of work in diversity um, at the board level for the, the school board that I sit on. Oh, cool. And. You know, diversity is just numbers, is how many mm -hmm. people, you know, but all the other stuff is, is um, multiculturalism right. and, and inclusion and affinity and like. And I think a lot of that's lost in this conversation about, yeah. about diversity. Yes. Which, you know, baby steps, maybe. And also back to your point about hip hop being created and built and you know, kind of given to the world by, by, by Jews and blacks. And I think that definitely the bougie blacks were, or the, the R&B, people who were invested in R&B were, it was like, um, I don't know, like rock and roll was, you know, for, for white people when yeah. it first came out. And it was like, what are you doing? Listen to that noise. Sure. Like, here's the real, yeah, yeah. you know, and... Um, and I think that the, the Jewish people that were a part of that not only liked it and were invested in it, but they also had the foresight to see that this was money. Mm -hmm. Like there's, there's an yeah, audience absolutely. for this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've, we've not touched them really, right? Right. Because, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was an awakening for me yeah. at 14. That's when I, that's when I first heard it. What what was the record? Rapper's Delight. Uh -huh. Rapper's Delight. Yeah, I mean that was. Um, I was thinking because I know you always ask people what was the first album or first. So record. that wasn't the first record you bought. 
It wasn't the first record I bought, but it was definitely the one that had the most significance. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really sure what the first record was. I was given a lot of records by my, my dad and my stepfather. Yeah. Um, I was given John Coltrane really early. Nice. Um, What's Going On, the Marvin mm. Gaye album by my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, early. My mom listened to Carole King and the Beatles and mm. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. I saw the album in the uh-huh. bathroom yeah. <laughs> when I went. <laughs> and, um, and so I had this really kind of eclectic exposure sure. to music. Yeah. And I loved Donna Summer. I loved Barry Manilow. Barry Manilow <laughs> might have been my fa- my first record. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it might have been the first album I bought. I just I, remember my grandmother was into Barry Manilow mm, and Neil Diamond. Yeah. They, for some reason, they went together in her mind. And then I had a cousin who's like, he's probably your age. Mm. So just ahead of me, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, and he was into that. And my grandmother used to always tell the story that he couldn't get dates because he was into that kind of music. Yeah. I think that's not why he couldn't get dates. <laughs> I don't think that actually that had anything to do with it. Now right. as I got to know him, yeah. But uh, that was her, that's my association with Barry Manilow. It's not sexy. It's not sexy to to like Barry Manilow really. <laughs> to listen to his music. But but I. But did. I've seen what uh, what is the Sweet Caroline. I've seen that what that record does to people when it comes on. Yeah, yeah. And you just kind of can't not sing it. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. So you know, it was. Um, yeah, I don't remember what the first records record I bought was but when Rapper's Delight came out and and a, another friend Monica made me we sat on the back of the F bus to and from our acting class in San Francisco mm. and she made me memorize it <laughs> and so that's all we did for yeah. like a whole summer was nice. just every word I can still recite every word we won't stop you no 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 <laughs> <laughs> Please help me welcome a new sponsor to Rebel Radio, the Nickelodeon show Paw Patrol. You know, I, I have a nine-year-old son. Uh, we sometimes talk about him on the show. I'm, I know, and I know for a fact that a lot of you have kids. I'm guessing you might have a Paw Patrol fan on your hands. My son, he couldn't get enough of it when he was like preschool, kindergarten age. Well, your kids will be excited to know there's new episodes on Nickelodeon featuring Tracker, the jungle pup who speaks Spanish. Uh, your little fans are not going to want to miss it. Catch a brand new Paw Patrol episode March 15th on Nickelodeon at 12, 11 Central. Check it out. I'd love to hear what you think. So, and then how did you find yourself in the music business? Um, so, what, yeah, I mean, just briefly what happened was I was working for an entertainment publicist. Okay. Um, named Prudence Baird. She had the Baird Company, and they were corporate entertainment. Mm. And um, I was dating Brian, um, who I then later married, Brian mm-hmm. Robbins. And his best friend was Steve Rifkin, who was just starting Loud Records. Yeah. Um, I think he had just gotten his deal with RCA at that point, and he needed some help with getting getting the word out on his artists. Yeah. And I think. I think then it was the Alcoholics mm-hmm. and Mob Deep, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, he didn't have Exhibit yet. Right. Wu-Tang was 
happening, but yeah. it hadn't happened yet. Yeah. Like the deal, yeah, Wu Tang yeah. had happened. Yeah. But, so it was fledgling, mm -hmm. and um, and so I wanted to. I, I started bringing in clients. I wanted to become a partner. She didn't want me to become a partner because she wanted to have a baby and mm. kind of slow the business down. Mm -hmm. So um, Brian, who was you know he was. We had been just been dating then, and he's like, "If you want to go out on your own, like that's what you should do, yeah. and and I'll help." Yeah. You know, not financially, which would have been great, but <laughs> <laughs> but he helped connect me to people, uh -huh. and like my girl's a publicist. Yeah. She's handling you know all of Loud Records now, which right. you know this is like three months later, and by that time they might have had the Wu Tang Clan. Yeah. And um. And so it, it's, it started, like RCA hired me mm -hmm. um, to do some stuff, and right. then Universal hired me, and um, Sony Music hired me, I, only to do urban, uh -huh. my air quotes that no one can see. But, no, we have video. Oh, you, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so only to do urban. Yeah. Um, I, I never got to do anything mainstream for any of them. But, but by, well, is that, yeah. I mean, I, so I don't know if that's because you were black, but I also think that, you know, especially at that time, I mean, yeah, definitely not now, but at that time, you know, the, the media outlets were very different. Yes. Right. Yes. You know, and whenever like a Rolling Stone or a Spin would do something on a hip hop act, it was like this big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was either super weird left field mm -hmm. thing or it was, you know, a massive, you know, it was a public enemy or, yeah. you know, Beastie Boys, something like that. No, um, I mean... It, it was, I had, I had, a, I had a, a plethora of places that I could go to. Right. But they were all, you know, if you ask the average Joe on the street, they had never heard of any of them. Absolutely. And, um, you know, and, and remember, um, what's his name? J.R. Reynolds? Mm-hmm. From Variety. Oh, Variety, yeah. Billboard. Was it Billboard? Billboard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he did like the black beat, so right. he was my go-to yeah. journalist there. And um, but I, I was absolutely hired um, to do urban publicity because I was black, but also because mm -hmm. I had this connection. Sure. Because um, I'm sure it's much different now. I was a publicist before social media. Right. But at that time, um, you know, you had to consistently hone all these connections. I had to read everything. Yeah. I had to read every magazine, every newspaper. I had to know exactly what journalists liked and what they didn't like. I took them out to lunch. I took them out to breakfast, took them out to dinner, invited them to parties. Mm -hmm. And you created these relationships. So when people hired me, they were buying my relationships. Right. And, and I worked really hard for them and, and not a lot of people had them. I was the only black entertainment publicist, single publicist in Los Angeles at that time. Wow. There just wasn't anybody else. Entertainment. Yeah. Um, doing what I did. Yeah, so eventually the word got out and everybody started hiring me, but only, again, for Urban. Was there, was that like a, was there a moment when you had like a big break? I think when um, Spielberg hired me for Amistad, mm. That's that, huge. Yeah, I mean, it was DreamWorks, yeah. but he yeah. he said, um, let's bring her in. Nice. And that was a great interview. I was so nervous. I have no recollection of it. Really? <laughs> I must have said the right shit because yeah. I got the job, but I do not yeah. remember. 
I mean, I remember what he looked like. Debbie Allen was there. Oh, cool. Because she was a producer on the oh, movie. Oh, cool. Um, I think Geffen might have been there too. Yeah. And I remember thinking at one point, you're talking too fast. Slow it down. <laughs> Slow it down. And I had a book, a uh -huh. portfolio, yeah, sure. right? And with yeah. all my clippings in it. Yeah. And um, that was great. And then... That's what we used to do, even as writers. We'd send around our yeah, clips. Yeah, our clips. Yeah. Like, wow. Crazy. Um, when, when Dr. Dre left um, Death Row mm -hmm. and was starting Aftermath, uh, Stephen hooked me up with him, and um, I went and met with him. He had offices in the valley. Right. Um, pit bulls and security, uh -huh. and it was like weird and yeah. nice and boxes, right. and like it was all just starting. And Sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> and he, that was a really cool moment for me, meeting him, um, really understanding the gravity of that moment. like. Yeah. I and the rest of our world, anyway, right. had been following exactly what was going on mm -hmm. with Biggie and Tupac and Suge and mm -hmm. all of that. And then to be able to sit there across the desk from him and him saying, I'm starting this new thing. Yeah. Um, I need people I can trust. Stephen says I can trust you. Nice. And I was just like, wow, that's amazing. Um, and I only... I, I did the launch and like probably three or four months and then whoever I forgot aftermath was umbrellaed under uh, remember? no I don't remember well whoever they were umbrellaed under they they Might took over um, the publicity okay yeah yeah so those were two kind of standout moments for me yeah um, where I was like is that is that surreal point I'm 27, 28 years old, mm -hmm. um, being uh, trusted, mm -hmm. you know, with by Steven Spielberg with his baby project because you know this was no one wanted to fund Amistad, which right. is why he waited till he went to DreamWorks to do it. Wow! And then you know with Dr. Dre and that that was that was pretty amazing. So what does that do for you when when people like that express their trust in you? Oh, it, you know, so just a little bit back. So, yeah, I went to Berkeley High, but I didn't get past the 10th grade. Mm. Um, I stopped going to high school. <laughs> I kept going to school. I just stopped going to classes. Okay. So nobody really knew that I had dropped out. What do you mean you kept going to school? Well, it was an open campus. Okay. And everybody had different periods where yeah. they were in and out, and people had, like, you know, breaks for you know two or three periods right. at a time so we so you went to school out. to see friends yeah uh -huh. i just kept going i didn't tell my parents yeah um they found out eventually i imagine yeah <laughs> and that it wasn't terrible but they were just like you either have to go to school or get a job right. so eventually i got a job i had three jobs but so i didn't finish high school can i ask what why did you drop out of school i'm not exactly sure mm. um there was a, a lot of um, chaos and violence at home then. My stepfather had cheated on my mother. Um, they were violent. Mm. Uh, I was feeling um, bereft and lost, you know, and yeah. 
I had, I had gone to independent schools all the way up to high school. Berkeley High had 3,000 kids. I had mm -hmm. never been in a school with over like 200 kids. Right. And just the class, given the class schedule and then making my way around this huge campus and the expectation of me, sorry, was that I would have learned the way the other kids had learned, um, which was in Martin Luther King Jr. High School mm -hmm. and then whatever elementary school every other kid went to. Right. I didn't learn that way, you know, <clears throat> and, and math and science were just beyond me. Mm. Like, I, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. it. It never occurred to me to get help or get a tutor because I never needed it before. Mm -hmm. I'd always done really well in my setting. So somewhere in there, I missed enough classes because I wasn't prepared, didn't right. have the homework, sure. so that I just didn't return again. Yeah. And I think because things were so chaotic at home, at home that it wasn't noticed. And yeah. I wanted to keep up the pretense that everything was okay so my mother didn't have to worry about me, that she could just worry about what was happening there. And they, they got divorced um, right after that. I was 16 when they got divorced. Mm -hmm. So they were in the, the end of their marriage at that point. Yeah. And um, What was the job you got? I, did, I had two jobs at first. I worked at a sandwich shop making these really amazing sandwiches uh -huh. <laughs> with like fresh baked bread. So good. And then I worked at the Berkeley sauna. Oh, wow. Um, and really, I just had to clean the rooms and then work the front desk there. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I worked at Skates on the Bay. Okay. Do you remember that? It was like no. in Emeryville. Oh, wow. Pier. I think it's still there. We didn't make it to the East Bay very much. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was like this fancy restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's not real, but it, then it seemed like it was right. fancy, yeah. and it was right on the water. Oh, so cool. I, I was a waitress there, sandwich maker, and worked at the Berkeley Sauna. Okay. Never went to college. Uh -huh. um, I took I took courses at, in junior college, some courses, mm -hmm. but whenever it got to math and science, I was done. So I was like, I'm I'm out. All right. So back to your yeah. question, when people trusted me, with these really big projects, um, I felt, one, like it was surreal, it was amazing, it validated me, and the yeah. other thing I felt was fraudulent mm -hmm. because nobody knew that yeah. I hadn't gone to college or finished high school. Yeah. Um, I, I had a lie about a school that I went to, which I figured nobody would ever double check. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, Sony Music did when they wanted to hire me. So oh, wow. That was bad. <laughs> And um, they're like, we don't show you ever attending that school, let mm. alone getting a degree. And I was like, oh, you can check that? <laughs> it sucks. <That's> awesome. <laughs> um, so it was, it was a really hard duality. Yeah. It was amazing and it was scary at the same time. And then, um, so when I got married and got pregnant right away with Miles, I went to work immediately dismantling mm. the company that I built because I think part of me just really understood that I was going to be exposed on a on a more public level eventually, mm. or at least I feared that. Maybe I, I didn't know. Maybe I was just scared of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I would have told you probably at that point nobody would care anymore because then you had all these accomplishments that right. didn't matter. Right, yeah. But... Uh, 
Yeah. Doesn't matter. Like that fear lingers mm -hmm. no matter what. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And looking, I mean, I would have told myself that now. Right. Like, come on, Laura. Nobody cares. Yeah. But at the time, it seemed like this huge looming mm. thing. Yeah. Interesting. So it was, um, it was wonderful and terrible, both at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that was when you were having your first son. Yes. So, uh, how long have you been sort of not working is not the right way to say that. Yeah. Well, I stopped working then. That was 90. I had miles in 98. Uh -huh. Um, so before he was born, I had dismantled the company. Yeah. Um, got everybody jobs. Mm -hmm. Everybody that worked for me got a job. Cool. Um, and I have not worked for a living yeah. since then, you know, but I started writing, yeah. um, which gives me an occupation and a daily, right. um, discipline. So, so let's talk about that. What, yeah. first of all, why did you start writing? So I've always written, I've always written. That's actually why Prudence Baird hired me at the Baird company mm -hmm. because, um, the person that she had hired, um, wasn't able to write press releases. And I was like, well, let me take a look at it. Mm -hmm. I can do that because this is simple. This is formulaic. Right. I can figure this out. Yeah. And so I, I can write. I can write those. I wrote bios. I can write, you know, pitches. Mm -hmm. um, I'd always journaled, always journaled since yeah. I was a little kid, wrote short stories. Ebony Junior Magazine oh, cool. gave me a... a a writer of the year award uh, <laughs> when cool. I was like 10. Nice. And I'm sure they're not around anymore. Probably not. Probably not. Um, Maybe they're an Instagram channel. <laughs> they might be. That would be pretty cute. Um, so when, so, you know, what, what happened, um, and I, and I write a lot about both these things, but what happened was after my kids were born and they were little and I was raising them and, um, my, my now ex-husband was kind of off shooting movies because he was a director mm -hmm. turning producer at that time. I started taking pills to get to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and I got really addicted to them. And that, that lasted a long time. My, my management of them lasted a long time. Mm. And then when it was unmanageable, also lasted a long time. Yeah. And that was, you know, kind of signaling the end, the beginning of the end of my marriage. It wasn't everything mm -hmm. that brought it to a close, but it was a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a way to get closer to somebody, to be, you know, embroiled in addiction. Can imagine. And, you know, if I had any space, time, energy, and love, it was for my kids. If I, could, I did everything at that point just to be okay, yeah. like well. Mm -hmm to not be in withdrawal and so that I could be around for my kids. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's what brought me to the end of um, my marriage. So my marriage was 13 years. He and I, we had dated for four years before, so we were together for about 17 years. And um, at the end of that, I, I was, I don't, and lost isn't the right word. Mm. I just, I just didn't have anything anymore. And um, he had discovered my journals, which is actually how, how he found out how bad the addiction was. Mm. 
And so I didn't trust myself to write anything down anymore. I didn't trust that it wouldn't right. be read and exposed. So I didn't write for a while. Um, and, uh, and then when I did start writing, it was kind of just cathartic writing, like getting out on paper how I felt, mm -hmm. how weird this was, how hard this was. Um, you know, I chose to get sober. Mm -hmm. I, went, I, got, I went to treatment and got sober. That's where I met Scott. Um, we, he checked in an hour after I did. Oh, wow. Yeah. So That's I've cool. been divorced for 10 years. I've been sober for over 10 years. Yeah. And he and I have been together for over 10 years. Nice. And um, so, yeah, I just, I just started writing about what that was like, you know, about the lies I told growing up, mm -hmm. um, about the lies I told about not graduating, about, you know, that this kind of um, creation that I had made that I tried to live up to. That was part me, yeah. part my authentic self, but also a fabrication as well that I thought would be better, more easily accepted by people. And, you know, and, and part of that was, was I am, you know, this, this great wife. And I might have been, been a great wife. Hmm? I'm a great girlfriend, right? But, um, <laughs> but I was not the wife that I kind of sold to Brian. Okay. Um, I'm not domestic. I'm not like the social light. I am not someone who enjoys decorating or putting on a party, but I kind of hoped that I could be for him. Mm. And I kind of sold myself that way. And I, you know, he, he had a, a way of seeing people that, that was favorable. He was, he's very charming. Um, and, and really wonderful, you know, when he likes you. Mm -hmm. And I saw the, the, the people that he liked and how he regarded them. And I wanted to be like that. He didn't say, you need to do this, this, and right. this. Sure. But I saw that he admired so-and-so, and she's an amazing housekeeper, and so-and-so does all her own decorating. And mm -hmm. this woman, you know, is like the best mom and the best wife because she they go, they go out on date nights, and she's always put together. Mm -hmm. So I tried to incorporate all those things that he admired into my personality and mm. be that. And that's where we de I departed um, and needed, I think, the pills and alcohol to help with that, to help with that departure. Okay. Um, so writing, coming to um, get to know myself authentically, probably for the first time, mm. was what the writing was about. Um, and then uh, you know, in, in the recovery community, you tell your story mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. And people, when I tell my story, they're like, you should write that down. Like, that's an amazing story. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, it's like everybody else's story here. But for some reason, the stories that I told seem to land well mm -hmm. um, or in a different way. So I started writing them. I started taking writing classes. Cool. So I wasn't just writing for myself now, but writing... And was that with a purpose in mind? Not at first. Okay. At first, I think I was just taking them because I just wanted to be better at it. Mm. Um, but then I started taking classes that made me want to get my work out there. Mm -hmm. and, and really, to, to write a book. That's, that's what I thought. I should, you know, I should write this as a book. This yeah. is a great book. Yeah. And um, then, you know, I, I took a book proposal class. 
and took some more um, classes that are geared to helping you write chapters, mm -hmm. memoir classes. Mm. Um, and I kind of got my book proposal out there and it was just rejected on all fronts. Like everybody was like, we don't know who you are. Right. The memoirs are the most difficult thing to sell unless you are Michelle Obama. Right. You know, we're sure. not going to be able to get you on bookshelves. Wow. So you must go out there and get some articles published. Um, do whatever you can to make a name for yourself so yeah. that you have Instagram followers so that I can Google you and more comes up than just. So let's talk about that. But there's something, you know, hearing you talk. Um, you know, you, we talked earlier about the environment you grew up in yeah. and sort of not fitting in mm -hmm. in certain ways. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and again, you know, how we grew up in this sort of very unique bubble. Yeah. Um, and then later in life, you know, you sort of told yourself a story that was maybe partly true mm. about how you fit into that environment. Mm -hmm. um, are those things connected? Oh, sure. Sure. The, the departure from who I was to the, the, the space between who I was and the story that I told um, began very early on. And I, 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 I mean, I think for, I've, uh, sorry to cut you off. Yeah. I think that's true for all of us. Yeah, uh, probably. I think mine was more, um, I can't think what the word is, but when my stepfather came into my life, um, and my mother and I have talked about this, he, he hated me. Mm. I was five. Yeah. And the stuff that I was and what I did just rubbed him the wrong way and, and created this negative atmosphere, this toxic kind of atmosphere in my house. So I edited that. Mm -hmm. Who I was was immediately edited down. So by the time I met Brian, I was very well practiced in editing myself. Right. Um, but then, so yeah, that, that, was, that was definitely, they're all connected in that way. Um, but yeah. So editing yourself is an important skill. It is. It can be. Five-year-olds are terrible, first of all. Let's yeah. just start there, right? They're horrible people. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But I was but, great. No, I'm sure, you were, I'm sure you were lovely. Um, no, but like there's a... But that's true, right? That, that to be able to edit yourself, you, you know... It's absolutely you, a skill. You, you can't just blurt out or act out everything that comes mm -hmm. to mind, right? Because we have to live in a, some type of society right. and get along, and if, right? And so... But obviously it can go too far and it can go, the, you know, the wrong place. Um, how have you, you know, as you've gotten more practiced and skilled at this, what's the, what's the right balance? I think the, the right balance for me is when, if I'm editing to conceal something, to keep a secret from you, to manage your response to me, mm rather than just editing because I'm being polite, <laughs> civilized. Right. Um, um, I'm, I'm keep, I'm, you know, kind of going with the flow of whatever is going on. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a tricky line for me. But for me, I think the bottom line is 
I really have to watch dishonesty because mm. it's a very slippery slope for me. Mm -hmm. So where somebody who doesn't have this issue may be able to edit themselves more and be fine, okay. I have to be more mindful of it mm. um, because it can get into that place and very quickly I can get lost and where's, where's, the, where's the, the, re, the, the truth or the reality of where I am versus... So yeah. now seeing the work that you're putting online yeah. and I've watched, you know, a bunch of the talks, which are amazing. Mm. Um, uh, the Starbucks story was yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, the, um, all great stuff. And I've read a bunch of articles. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you seem to be just incredibly open. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would guess you have no fear of revealing yourself. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Most people say when they read the articles, especially and my blog, which mm -hmm. um, that was the other part of creating a name for myself was sure. to start a blog, which will be three in, in March. Cool. But, um, the blog was. Um, anyway, uh, putting myself out there, people read it and they come back and say, you're so brave yeah. for this. And um and honestly, you're, you're right. I'm not, I'm not scared of putting it out there. So it's not brave writing. Mm -hmm. um, the, the last piece, the one that's still doing well, which is amazing, um, that ran in the Huffington Post yeah. about finding out um, that, that Brian, you know, who it remarried, mm -hmm. um, someone that we both knew, and they were having a baby, mm -hmm. and, and what that was like for me. That piece was terrifying. I was really I was scared to write it. Why? Well, one, I reveal some really intimate details about myself, about how I didn't want them to have a baby. Right. That's not something that I wanted to admit. Sure. Um, I didn't know how, how I would be viewed for admitting something that is not seen as generous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and, you know, Brian and I have managed to, to stay connected during our divorce. We have... We raised our children together. Um, we're still raising them together, mm -hmm. and um, and I didn't I didn't want to mess with that either. Yeah. You know, this yeah. was a it was not just my intimate details of how I didn't want them to have this baby, and I was really adamant about it in my head. Right. Um, and they didn't know <clears> that. <throat> they thought that you know whatever I sounded like on the phone when of I course. got the news was how I felt, yeah. which. I think was all right, um, but I also revealed intimate details about them. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I take you into the hospital room with them, and you know the conversation that we had is the conversation the three of us had. It wasn't just me. Right. Almost all my writing, sorry, I keep touching this, is is just about me yeah. and my point of view. Yeah. And this one was very much about them as well. And. You know, I, I try to make myself a reliable narrator mm -hmm. in my stories by exposing as much about myself, if not more, than than the other people in the story. Mm -hmm. um, and even though I think I did that in this piece, it was still really, it was scary. And um, the other thing I was scared of was that people would view her in a negative way. Mm. Um, sure. And, and that's happened before with some of my writing. She's been amazing. She has said, write, write your story, write whatever you want. Yeah. Um, 
but I, you know, people who think they're kind of supporting me by tearing her down, right? That's yeah, not supportive right. to me at all. Yeah. So. Yeah. So how do you? I mean, that's one. You know, we talk about editing, right? That's mm -hmm. one piece. Is that obviously, you know, you're you're bearing these things about yourself, but you're also bearing details about other people around you, yeah. or, um, you know. You know, you may not be writing about Scott, but you know he's he's I connected. Write about Scott, right? Yeah. But I'm saying even <laughs> yeah. when you aren't, right? Like yeah. that's connected to him. Yeah. And so, yeah. How do you make those decisions? Um, if if the fear isn't about revealing yourself, right? But but mm -hmm. you know, how do you make those decisions where it impacts other people? Um, that's a really good question. I've I've looked around for the answers to that. I've I've talked to other memoirists. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been to two or three writers' conventions um, and gone to the memoir panels and mm. asked those questions, asked that exact question of the people on the panel. Yeah. Um, the answer is always the same. You just write yeah. your experience. You cannot worry about the impact. And if you're really worried, then you don't write the story. Mm. But um, you can't write part of it. You can't write it and right. filter it out sure. and try to manage manage it. Once it's out there, it's out there. What, yeah. When have you been surprised at the reactions to your your writing and your stories? Oh, every time I've yeah. had something published, I've been blown away. Like, the, particularly this last piece. Um, to to get a letter from or an email from the editor. On, on New Year's Day saying, by the way, your piece had over a million views wow. last month, making it the most viewed piece of That's December. Cool. Like, and it, it feels so separate from me. Right. You know, I wrote it in October, October, November, got it to her at the beginning of December. She published it. Mm -hmm. She bought it right away, but she published it two weeks later. Mm. But I, I feel like I haven't had a relationship with that piece for a long yeah, time. Yeah, sure. And and now it's kind of out there living a life of its own, <laughs> you know, it's seeing people, making friends, yeah. <laughs> taking pictures. Yeah. Um, and I so it's surreal and surprising and amazing. It it's odd. It doesn't feel like it's my accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that is because I wrote it. But well, I, I think know. there's something to that that time lag yeah right and there's i mean and we see this with all artists mm -hmm. right that you create something and then it takes on a life yeah and in some ways it it holds you i don't want to say it holds you back like in a negative sense but but it pulls you back to that time of creation yeah where like i'm sure you've written a whole bunch of things since then and you've kind of moved on creatively mm. but yet you're still living yeah i mean and I haven't written a whole bunch of things <laughs> since then, but okay. I've, I'm writing, and yeah. the writing is not there anymore. Right. Like, that story's exactly. done. That's exactly. filed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's surprising. It's cool. Like, from my dad, you know, mm. when he's, he's on Facebook, and he sees it, and he's, that's cool. you know, like, Laura, I'm so proud of you. Like, that's cool. My mom, too. Nice. You know, like, that's the cool part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Scotty. He's very proud. <laughs> hey, if you're enjoying this one, uh, let's continue on the storytelling theme. 
We can go back into Rebel Radio archives. I interviewed Catherine Burns of The Moth. Um, I think it was a couple years ago out at South by Southwest, live on stage at the Dropbox Podcast Studio. It was a great interview. You know, we really dug into a lot of the the nuts and bolts of what makes great stories and how The Moth has built this incredible brand, uh, helping people share their stories. It's good stuff if uh, you're into that kind of thing. What, um, what, what did you learn back when you had a PR company that you're using today? Um, well, one of the biggest things I learned that I'm using today is that you're pitching a person mm. and not an outlet or a newspaper. <laughs> <clears throat> right. So to make sure that you are, or that I am, um, familiar with, have a relationship with, you know, I am being respectful and that I've done my research mm -hmm. before I go in to anybody mm -hmm. to ask them to look at anything, publish anything, you know, anything is yeah. it's the person and not because that was a big mistake that I made in the beginning. Back then. Yeah. 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 And um, I think someone told that to me. Mm. I don't know, or maybe I maybe I figured it out, but I'm absolutely using that now. You know, it, this is, I have an idea, I want to put it out there, and I need to not just uh, what outlet, but but who is the best person to help me tell the story? Who's the best person to help me get this out there? In editors, the other thing um, that I learned then that I'm using now is that editors um, are people, mm. <laughs> and they need. You know, editors needed publicists, sure. right, to right. bring them stuff. There's yeah. a relationship there. It's not a hierarchy, even though it could be. Yeah. And the same thing with, with, with um, you know, journalism, with me writing. Editors need these great stories. Sure. So to, um, you know, kind of take that out of it, it helps me because then I'm not so, um, I'm not cowed or you know, servile when I'm, when I'm coming to people with something. Right. And I think that is helpful. I think there's a level of respect then yeah. that, and it also is like, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. And I don't have to take it personally. Mm. Um, that because, one seems tricky because you're pitching yourself, right? Whereas in, yes, you know, before yes, you were pitching, pitching somebody else, you could always blame yeah. the client, yeah. right? Like, or the work. Yeah. Didn't, so now, but now maybe it's not a good fit, <clears throat> you know, or it's not a good time for this story. Yeah. I mean, I, I have a rejections file um, that's tremendous. Mm -hmm. It's huge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Scott and I, at, at one point before the Brave Magic piece got published, we were just kind of laughing about it. So I'd be like, in my email every day, there was another rejection. Yeah. Some of them were really nice. Most of them weren't. Most yeah. of them were, you know, form letters. Yeah, of course. Boilerplates. And, yeah. Um, I, you know, then I get these couple I only of kept hits. one. You only kept one? Yeah, I got one signed by Mike Ovitz saying, Oh, yeah. Thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> it, was, it was nice, you know. You got to keep that. Though. Yeah, I kept that one. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I don't know. It's They're rejecting my work, but it's not, I don't know. I don't think of it like it's not good enough. I just think of it like, or at least that's what I'm thinking now. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe if I get more rejections later on, it'll feel differently. But right now, it, it's just like, I'm I'm so grateful, honestly, if anybody looks at it. Yeah. Like if I get a letter back where they've actually read it. Yeah, sure. I, I really am honestly, it, it's like that, 
it's an honor to be nominated kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> like it really is yeah. just to be considered yeah. um, for me at yeah. this point. So what's the goal now? So I know you're, you're launching a podcast, which mm-hmm. I want to know yes. about. Yes. Um, the only one in the room. The only one in the room. Yeah. Yeah. What's tell me about the show. So the only one in the room um, will will be um, the, when I wrote the Brave Magic piece, which was about being the only black person at a 600 person retreat. Mm-hmm. The responses and comments I got from people afterward were not from black people, but right. from people who it felt othered because yeah. of a variety of reasons. And I decided that that was going to be the theme of my podcast mm-hmm. was when have you felt othered? When were you the only one in the room? What's mm. that experience like for you? Okay. And it can be, um, you know, I don't know what yours will be. You'll have to tell me when you're, when you're on. I've got, I have you, a plenty of those. You have plenty of those. Yeah. Um, I have a, a woman who, you know, is, she, she's white and married and looks normal as an average to the population, but her severe dyslexia almost cost her everything. Mm. And so she's going to be one of my stories. Um, I have another woman who's an actress who um, grew up mixed race, black and white, in upstate New York, and um, had a really hard time fitting in with her black relatives and had this kind of epiphany with the Black Student Union in college. And it's a really great story. Mm. Um, We have another person that um, has transitioned from female to male and um, is also in recovery. And, and did it in the rooms like we all watched wow. him trans, tr- you know, um, yeah. transition. And so different stories like that yeah. and, and what, what that experience of being othered is like and how come it's the worst thing and how come it's also the best thing, you know. So Interesting. That's, yeah, that's the podcast. So. That's cool. I think, I think it's, um, it, it, the feedback I'm getting is that it's a great idea and we'll, we'll see how it goes. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm picking up interview tips from you right now. So. What not to do. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> what to no, do. No, that, I mean, that sounds amazing. Yeah. I think it's, you know, as you're saying, it's something everyone can relate to. We've mm-hmm. all had that. I, I also think, um, do you have moments where you just feel like we're all too damn sensitive? Oh, yes. Very much. And it's, and it's, it's, it's interesting with the, the Me Too and the Time's Up movement, mm-hmm. um, which I'm very much in alignment with the idea of both of those two. Yeah. But I'm also the mother of two boys, mm-hmm. men, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, 19 and a 20-year-old, yeah. um, who I've had to coach every moment that I can get about what they can say and what they can't say right. to women. Yeah. You know, putting your hand on someone's back or shoulder could be misconstrued and get you charged. Mm-hmm. And, and my sons are black. Right. So that is it, doubly scary. Yeah. You know, they, they are, well, they're mixed race, but mm-hmm. they look black. Mm-hmm. Uh, their friends are like ours were when we grew up. They're right. all diverse. Yeah. But, you know, if, if one of... The women that they know who happens to be white, has a friend who's around, who takes umbrage with the, what they said or how they said it, or um, my boys are in trouble, Yeah, you know? And, yeah. and, and then, you know, with, with race too, like I, I am really firm that there are certain words that should just never be said. There are certain experiences that um, people who are not 
who haven't had that experience. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about the black experience in general, that's okay. But if you're talking about, if you're trying to equate your experience as a white person to a black person um, experiencing, you know, um, prejudice or or hate or fear in America, then then you can't do that right. as a white person. You just you just can't equate your experience to that experience. I mean, that's so interesting. And you mentioned earlier that the idea that being the other can be both terrible and, and wonderful, yes. right? And, you know, I, that resonates with me very strongly because, you know, for a long time I was, um, uh, you know, I was a white kid into hip hop. I mean, forget about being a white kid. I was into hip hop yeah. as a kid, which for a long time made you the other. Right. Right, because everybody didn't even know about it. Yep. Right. So we thought we had this great secret and then being a white kid in that. And um, it never occurred to me that I was having the same experience mm. as maybe black kids that were in the hip hop mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, but I knew it spoke to me, however it spoke to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this wanting to belong, I think, is both innate and um uh, and very harmful, mm -hmm. right? That we, we, for whatever reason, it's really hard for us to just be. Yes. But we'd kind of be better off if we could. Yeah, but I think there's this really strong pull in us to identify and to belong. Yeah. And, you know, and, and then what we're talking about right now is, is that separation of race and culture. Right. Right? Because mm -hmm. culturally, we, you and I grew up the same. Right. Racially, we weren't. Yeah. Right. Sure. But we had, I mean, almost identically. Right. Like with the the diversity of the cultures, the mm -hmm. multiculturalism, and then the culture of hip hop. Right. You know, which is his own culture. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you're white and I'm black. Right. So, we can't have the same experience that way, even of though we have all these different experiences that might be exactly the same. Right. And that is a societal. Um, segregation you know society won't let us connect with race we can't just be the same right. because we're different sure and we were reminded of that or black people are reminded of that all the time i don't think white people are reminded of their race as often as black people are when i no, walk into a room not. yeah i'm always right. aware that i'm black yeah right i just am i walk into this room and i'm like okay i'm the only black one here mm -hmm. it's all right but i'm gonna notice it sure you know he started noticing when I'm the only black one in the room. Uh -huh. Like, we'll go into a room and he'll be like, two. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, yeah, yeah hun, that's right. <laughs> there are two. Yeah, but, and, and, and that's not wrong. Mm -hmm. But also, like, so there's two. Go talk to the other guy. Probably a very different experience very than different. what you've had. Yes, right? yes. And, and I think that's true. And, and I guess, you know, not that we're going to solve this or mm. that it even matters, my opinion on it, but I think it's, I find it interesting that, you know, if I'm a white guy walking into a room full of white people, there's this assumption that we're all the same. Yes. And that's bullshit. Yes. Right? That, you know, I probably have very little in common with a lot of those people, mm -hmm. usually, mm -hmm. sometimes more than others. Um, and, yeah, on some level, we've we've shared the same race experience. Mm -hmm. 
although not because I'm Jewish and I grew up in a black neighborhood and right. I and I right. had friends of all cultures and all these things, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, but again, it's that uh, it's that pull to walk into a room and feel like you belong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's not wrong, but it's it's harmful. It is. I mean. For me, I sacrificed a lot of who I was in order to do that, right. which is what we, That's what we were talking exactly. about. Exactly. You know, my it was very harmful for me. Yeah. And you know, I I until I got into recovery, I didn't even know it was something I could break out. Yeah. Something that I could do differently, see differently. Yeah. Be differently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I t- like a super harmless version is when I was, my kid was young, we had this dad's day, like all the Mm -hmm. moms and kids that played together invited all the dads. And I was wearing a Giants hat Mm. and I hate baseball. (laughs) Sorry to all the baseball fans. I think it's- No offense here. I just think it's the stupidest sport and I can't stand (laughs) it. But I'm from San Francisco and I rep the Giants, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm wearing a baseball hat and this dad walks up to me wanting to talk about last night's game And, the, and, I was, and I just sized this guy up in two seconds. I was like, we just have nothing in common. He, he's had that experience and, so much. Yeah, yes. I'm sure. You know, it, and, you know, this poor bastard was trying to, trying to bond, and I, it's not his fault, right, right? Right, It's my fault for wearing something that I don't care yeah. about. Um, but, you know, that was a great example of just mm-hmm. like, this is not my room. Um, but that's okay, too. Yeah. You know, I just ran off with my kid and did, did our thing. Well, I just think you're talking about you know, like we use race to protect culture. Yeah. Like that's that's the real thing. And the, the identifier is white people. Yeah. They walk into a room of white people and identify. Right. And then we go baseball. That's right. right. Like, and male. But the, yeah, but the yeah, male. Is yeah, we're sure. all the same. That's like right. We're protecting our culture. And it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a really sticky place, right? It's like, yeah. Um, the diversity of this country at, at this time is culture is becoming a much grayer zone. Mm hmm. And I think people are, uh, some people are really scared of it, of losing that cultural identity. That's right. Um, and I always say to her, like, you'll know where your bias is when your kid shows up with a, 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 a partner from another race. Mm-hmm. And then you, then you find your bias. Because you can say, sure. I'm, I'm all this, until you <clears throat> have it standing right mm-hmm. in front of you. Yeah, sure. So yeah. It's, a, it's a really, I think that the, the hip-hop is such a great example because it, it really transcended, you know, your story. Great, right. transcended culture yeah like i just like hip-hop right Mm -hmm. and that was the beginning of a real change Mm -hmm. in america because now it's like what of the top 50 songs in the world it's yeah it's at least half i mean it's yeah it's it's permeated everything Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah 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 um okay so when i have to get to a lightning round before Mm -hmm. we get out of here but um so when's the show launching um we are hoping for march nice yeah yeah. So and we'll, where are we going to find it? Where are we going to find it, hon? You have to ask my producer. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, iTunes. Okay. Spotify. Cool. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to put it out in um, the most accessible format we can get it. Awesome. Yeah. And then beyond the show, what, what's the goal? Are you still writing a book? the book? Yeah. 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 So the, the book that I was writing... Um, apparently the idea of this book is, is too broad. Okay. It, it covers too much. So yeah. right now I'm working on, on, on retooling it and making it. So more of just 
a black woman's fight through addiction for her children. Mm-hmm. Kind of uh, a black when a man loves a woman. Remember mm. that movie? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, there hasn't been another one of those movies mm. since, was that 2002 maybe? Yeah, something like that. When that one was out. And um, there hasn't been a, a movie about like, with, with a with anything other than a white lead about mm-hmm. about addiction mm-hmm. um, and recovery really? and you know this would and you know divorce and marriage and all of that yeah. um, and and the beginning of a new hopeful romance and but that's that'll probably end when Scotty comes into the picture so since you've taken all these classes and mm-hmm. studied and you're learned yes um, <laughs> what was what if somebody wants to write a memoir, what should they be doing to learn? That's a good question. Well, the first thing is to read memoir. Yeah. Um, read as many as you can. Find your niche. Find the writers whose voice you like. When you do a book proposal, they're going to want to know whose voice it is. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to do a comparison, just like when you're pitching a, a show or a film. You know, it's a combination of this and this. Mm. So read a lot. You have to read the whole time. You just always have to be reading memoir. Yeah. I also read a lot of articles. I read the Sunday New York Times. Mm-hmm. I, I like, you know, I just read, listen as well. Yeah. And um, and then once you found your voice, like I like this, I like this, and then my voice is right here. This is my niche. Then then to just start writing. Um, I would take a writing class. I would take a, a memoir class. But beyond that, you don't have to do that. Yeah. The other thing that I did, which is a really valuable thing, is I found a writer's group. Okay. Um, and we used to meet twice a month. Now we just meet once a month. Yeah. But having a group of memoirists that are also writing, getting their work out there, um, that's been invaluable. Mm. We, read, we read our stuff to each other. We give critique. We edit each other's work. Oh, wow. Um, we're support for each other um, on social media and, um, you know, in our group. Nice. So a writer's group, read memoir. And then, um, you know, and, and write just as much as you can. A blog is also really helpful. Nice. Um, because whoever may publish you is going to want to see a body right. of work. Yeah, absolutely. So that's good. Cool. Yeah. All right, let's get to the lightning round. Okay. What's your favorite city to travel to? Um, favorite city to travel to New York. Who's your favorite DJ? Um, Idris Elba. Nice. I've not seen him <laughs> DJ, but I understand that he's great. What's the last great book you read? The last great book I read was um, I Am Yours by Rima Zaman. Um, she's also going to be a guest on my podcast. Oh, cool. Um, it's just come out. I, I got the galley of it nice. um, last month. It's amazing. Mm. Yeah. Cool. What movie have you seen the most in your life? Oh, <laughs> there are so many I watch over and over again. Yeah? Like Love Actually. Okay. Um, we just saw that last week. Yes. Good. Um, the Professional. Uh-huh. Ghost. Um, Officer and a Gentleman. Wow. Terms of Endearment. It's too many. Those are great. Yeah. yeah. Those are like real movies. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me one. Eight Mile. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. I love 8 Mile. Um, tell me one decision that changed your life forever. Going to treatment. Hmm. Yeah. 
Complete this sentence. I don't have talent. I have blank. I don't have talent. I have um, authenticity. Mm. So if I worked for you, I don't know when's the last time you had somebody work for you, but now you have a I'm producer. A so Okay. <laughs> I don't know if housekeeping is. What's something I would hear you say over and over? Oh. Not to the housekeeper. What, what do I say to you over and over? If it's a good idea, you have to do it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> if he came up with the idea, he yeah. has to do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. a great idea. That means you get to do it. <laughs> that is what I say over and over again. Nice. Yeah. Who would you be most excited to learn appreciates your work? Oh, um, why am I blanking on her name? I love her. And I can't remember her name. <laughs> oh, this is terrible. It's okay, we can edit out. Take okay. Um, she wrote Hunger. And she's really, she's 560 pounds. Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Are you looking it up? Okay, cool. Yeah. Then we'll, we'll do it over. Stuck on it. No, no, it's fine. Stuck on it. Yeah. I've never heard of Hunger or this <laughs> oh, woman. Oh, it's such a good book. Roxanne Gay. Yes. Roxanne Gay. Roxanne Gay. Thank you. I, yeah. If she read it yeah. and liked something, that would be it. I could put the computer down, the keyboard nice. down. I wouldn't have to write anything else. Okay. Again. Yeah. Well, until that happens, where does everyone find you online? Um, so my, my blog is lauracathcartrobbins.com. Um, the only one in the room doesn't have a site yet, but will be up and launched soon. And everything will be connected to that, that same page. So you'll be able to look on lauracathcartrobbins.com and then go to all the other sites cool. from there. Yeah. Yeah. So, but you, this podcast is, um, uh, did you go out and pitch it to someone or are you doing it strictly on your own? Yeah, I'm doing it on our own. Cool. Except for, um... We are we are meeting with um, Allison and Christina. Okay, great. Yeah, they yeah. they they were sick, so or Christina was sick, but we're gonna yeah. meet with them next next week, and that might work out. But if not, we're just gonna do it. I took a podcasting class. You did? Yeah. What did you learn in your podcasting oh, class? Oh, it was so great. I didn't know anything about podcasts. Um, and this is a woman named Anna Scott. She has a show called There Goes the Neighborhood on KCRW. Mm. Um, and. She she just she took us, you know, a little bit through the technical part, but really just about the important things about finding a topic, mm -hmm. knowing who your audience is, um, what what to do so that your audience will tune in or, you know, tune in for the next one, tune in for the next one, tune in for the next one. Cool. Um, you know, what not to do. She had us listen to a bunch of podcasts that some which she said you don't ever want to do this. Oh, and then cool. some which she said, this is your goal. Yeah. Like do these are the podcasts that, nice. that, you know, create the audience. So James, we should either teach or take a podcast. In class. Yeah. Maybe both. Yeah. <laughs> You're not on the list. <laughs> We're on the list of what not to do. We do it together. Yeah. 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 You should teach one. All right. You should teach one. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is the first. You guys class. are gonna have a great show. Yeah. It's gonna be awesome. Uh, I can't you. wait. Yeah, me too. Thank you again. Come back anytime when the show's huge and you want to promote the book or whatever. Uh, I will. I will. Thank you. And you're gonna. I'm gonna see you next on, not here, but in our wherever we're gonna record. Anytime you want. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Just keep thinking of your only one in the room story. 
Oh, I got it. Got no, it. no, that's an okay. easy one. All right, and good. I actually have not told it to Yay. anyone. We'll premiere it yeah. on the podcast. Sure. Excellent. Cool. Thanks, Chad. Thank Thanks you for Laura. having me. Yo, that was Laura Cathcart Robbins on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Um, leave us a comment, a review on iTunes, on uh, wherever you like. You can hit us on Twitter, on Facebook. It's at Rebel Radio Net. Check out the videos from a lot of our episodes up on our YouTube page at Rebel Radio Net. And most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.